So, good morning. Great to have you with us. Um, If you have a Bible, open it with me to Luke chapter 23. Now, in some ways, I'm I'm quite glad that it's a disappointing day today in terms of weather, because if it was a really sunny day, I think this message would be a bit... uh, I'd I'd have to be fighting for your attention, right? Because I think this is heavy stuff. We are talking about Jesus coming to be crucified... And so, I think it's, it's kind of, this is profound stuff, and we're entering into something that is so mysterious, it's kind of the God-man dies on behalf of other people. And so, where do we start? Well, let's talk about shame, shall we? This is one of the reasons why I'm quite glad it's not sunny. It's not a very sunny day kind of topic of conversation, is it shame? People generally say something like, we don't really do shame in the West. We're not a shame-based Culture. People, people tend to say, in the East, it's honour and shame, and in the West, it's uh, guilt and innocence. And I think, okay, I know what people are trying to say when they say that, but I have met far too many people who carry around burdens of shame with them to actually believe that. Instead, I think it's better to say, we are not good at shame in this country. We don't really know often what we're talking about when we do talk about it. If you are friends with one of the many South Africans that attend this church, you probably hear the word shame used all the time. Looking at you, Mo Phillips. Uh, as a good and as a bad and everything in between. But shame is it's quite a powerful thing, really. And I think it's, it's helpful if we understand how it differs from kind of guilt and innocence and those things. So guilt, for instance, is your conscience telling you that you have done something wrong and is punishing you about it. So guilt is the feeling when you're lying in bed thinking about what you've done, and you can't forgive yourself. Shame is not like that. Shame is like, there is a bad smell in this room, and everyone is looking at you. And you're looking at yourself thinking, please stop looking at me. It's the feeling that you know that everyone else here has an eye on you, and you are lower. And sometimes it doesn't even have to be something that's felt. So... If I ask you this question, what would you rather have after you die? A statue built in your honour, or to have people come and spit on your grave? You could say, don't really care, I'm going to be dead. You could say that, but I think we all know that we'd much rather have a statue than people spitting on our graves. We'd rather our memory was honoured. And that, that spitting on the grave, the hating their memory, that's all part of shame. Shame is what other people, how other people consider you how your standing is. And shame isn't necessarily a bad thing. Shame can be a very good thing because shame is a way that we enforce social values, right? So, I mean, kids are brilliant on this, at this on the playground. Someone hits someone, whoa, we don't do that. Shame. That's not something we do. And until you've learned that that's not something that we do, we don't really want to be with you, right? And so it can be a really helpful thing. I mean, for instance... Uh, if, if you are a sex offender, that carries a lot of shame in this country. That's probably a good thing, because that's not the kind of behaviour that we want to encourage as a society. And in fact, one of the things that sociologists talk about is that one of the most dangerous things for society are people who are shameless. People who have nothing left to lose in the eyes of other people will do very radical, unhelpful, damaging things. So shame isn't necessarily a bad thing. We shouldn't automatically say, no, this is bad. And I think one of the reasons why we're so bad at shame is that we just think it's bad. But here's when it does go wrong. What social values are being enforced? 
what views are we putting on people? So, I mean, so for instance, um, a very common uh, place that people feel a sense of shame is people who have been sexually assaulted. And it often comes with this connotation, well, well it must have been my fault somewhere along the lines. And I think in, in one of those situations we want to say, okay, the shame here is in the wrong place. There shouldn't be shame. So it can be a good thing, it should be a good thing, and it can be a very bad thing. But shame is uh, weaponized by powerful people. And the Roman Empire are very good at shame. So let's just read the first half of this passage and, and look at what's going on here. So Luke 23, verse 26 to 39 says this. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was uh, on his way in from the country. And they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. They came to the place called the Skull. They crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothing by casting lots. (coughs) The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One... The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and they said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Crucifixion not only was a horrible, painful, torturous way to die... The way that it was used by Rome was not just that it was painful, it was the shame. The image of someone, not in the city, not dying amongst us in honour, but who is cast outside the city, their putrid, stinking corpse slowly dying, all the bones in their body being pulled down by the force of gravity, drowning by the moisture in their own body, birds coming and eating these fresh eyeballs. The whole scene was a scene of shame. I mean, one of the most interesting things from history is that we only have about four or five references to crucifixion in all of the writings we have from from the Roman Empire because they they thought even the word itself was so disgusting to say. We don't even want to talk about crucifixion. It happens. It's to people know that you don't step out the boundaries of the Roman Empire, but we don't want to talk about it. The whole point of it was shame. It's how they enforce that social boundary. The despicable, the lowliest, the, what, the people who everyone hates, the people who everyone wants to shame are sent for crucifixion and now we don't have to think about them. And their bodies are just left there. And so there's Jesus walking along and this man who's just there in the crowd is pulled out and now he is shamed. You carry the cross. The shame is kind of shared. And, and you think about, if you were in that crowd, there's the criminal, we all hate him, he, we, he's going taken, we know where he's going, we don't want to join in. And suddenly, the Romans start looking for someone, and they say, uh, yeah, uh, you. You're thinking, no, 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 not me. And so Simon is pulled out, 
He's given the cross and he has to carry it. And so that shame is then passed on to him. And then as they're walking along, the women weeping for Jesus, Jesus then turns and he shames the people of Jerusalem. You think this is bad? Let me tell you what's going to happen to you. It's going to be much worse. There's this funny saying that he has. If the people do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? You might be a bit confused by that. Fair enough. What he's saying is, well, if you have any experience with wood, green wood is rubbish for burning. It doesn't light. We can call it, if you like, peaceful wood. Dry wood, on the other hand, loves a spark. So Jesus, the, the peaceful revolutionary, the one who hasn't lifted a sword, the one who has never encouraged going to war against Rome, this is how they're dealing with Greenwood. They're crucifying him. They're subjecting him to this shame. So what are these people going to do when the wood is dry? When the revolutionaries get their chance? Which is exactly as we know what happened. In the, in the 60s, the revolutionaries rise up, they attack Rome, and Rome come in and absolutely smack them down. So Simon is shamed. Jesus then shames Jerusalem and their, their people in it. Then these criminals who are there too also being shamed again. Just being a petty thief doesn't get you crucifixion. It's not like the death penalty equals crucifixion. Crucifixion is like the death penalty on steroids. You must have done something really bad. So there they are. They're taken to this place. One on his left, one on his right. And then they take his clothes and they treat him like he's an object. He's still right there. He's alive. He's breathing. But his clothes, oh, should we just gamble over them? This is all part of this kind of theatre of shame. What can we do to make this man as low as he can possibly go? They divided up his clothes. They sneer at him. If you're the Messiah, you know, you can save people. Start with yourself. They offered him vinegar. I mean, vinegar's nice on chips. You don't want a wine glass full of vinegar. What are they doing? Oh, have some wine. This again, all part of this shame. Look at how much we can dehumanize this man. The king of the Jews. A sarcastic title. Yeah, look what happened to this king. But then the surprise comes when it's not just the soldiers and it's not just the rulers. So rulers, soldiers, general crowd, Jesus lower than all of them because they're all shaming him. Other criminals next to him, they start sneering at him and hurling insults at him. This picture is showing Jesus is at the absolute bottom of the bottom. That even those crucified people next to him think that they have enough social kudos to berate him, to shame him. Jesus is subject to the lowest form of shame. The lowest value in a group of people. And then something weird happens. And before we read the next few verses... We're now going to talk about honour. Now, guilt and innocence, these are like a spectrum. The less guilty you are, the more innocent you are. Honour and shame is not the same. Just being not shamed does not mean that you're honoured. Right? So let me explain. So, so Simon's there in the crowd. He's not going, I'm honoured. I've got all this honour and now I'm being shamed. He was just non-shamed and then became shamed. Honour is something that comes on top. Honour creates a hierarchy. There's a story I have from when I was in year five. 
my, my dad was the local vicar, and there was this American Christian rock band that had come over for a music festival, and we were friends with them, and my dad had managed to get them to come and perform at my school. And so there I was in year five, and I, I didn't actually really know that they were coming. I knew that they were going to be coming one day, but we get taken for an assembly, and as we arrive in, there's this... Uh, cool-looking American band, and it was back in, like, 2005, so, you know, they would have been wearing baggy jeans and hats sideways, and they were just so cool for us as, as uh, year five kids. And uh, my, my dad signals to me, when we're all sat down before the assembly begins, come up here, and so I walk up amongst my classmates, and the band are, you know, I'm not going to do the American accent, but, oh, hey, Joshua, and they're, like, high-fiving me and fist bumps, and, and was, I was just thinking, this is the coolest moment of my life. And I just remember that feeling as they went, right, we're going to start soon. And I walked back, all my classmates, all with their eyes on me, and like absolutely, you know, strutting back to my seat. And then just sitting down and saying to my friend James, yeah, no. <laughs> that's honour. That's not just non-shamed. That's that feeling that I could strut. Because I know them. It's who I'm with. Right? The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are being punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. That is not a statement of honour. That is a statement of non-shame. He shouldn't be on a cross. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Okay. That's a weird thing for him to say. No Jew in the first century would have thought that Jesus would die and then go to a place called heaven and that was his kingdom. They all knew what the Bible said, that the kingdom is a place that God is bringing from heaven to earth. So if, God, if Jesus is going to receive this kingdom, it's going to be on earth. So there he is turning to a man who is literally dying next to him and says, when you get your kingdom. I'm not saying that he knew about the resurrection and everything, but he knew that something was going to happen. Jesus' reply, truly I tell you, today, listen to the emphasis, you will be with me in paradise. Now the reason I say that is because often we read that as today you will be with me in paradise. That's not the point. The point is you're going to be with me in paradise, says Jesus. This is an honour thing. Hey, we're going to go into the presence of God and guess what? You're coming with me. You're going to come and you're going to strut. And what this verse does, this explodes the whole chapter because now we see that there are two theatres of honour and shame. There is the one theatre in the eyes of man. And in that theatre, these men are the lowest of the low. Jesus is the lowest of the low. This thief or criminal, whatever, is just slightly above him. And they are despised. And those with honour are the ones who are mocking and insulting and killing them. But then Jesus says, in the presence of God... You're not going to be just standing on the outer reaches. You're not just going to be having a good time. You're going to be there with me. It's like year five Joshua being invited up to fist bump and high five the band. You're going to come with me to the Father. And so the challenge is this. Choose your honour. Choose your shame. Do you want honour in the eyes of men? 
The ones who are hurling insults at the one on the cross. Do you want to... Um, are you afraid of shame from them? You can't bear that like Jesus did. Or do we take their shame and instead come into the presence of God looking for honour there? So it's really a question of which one do we value more? This comes to the whole thing of what is Jesus doing there in the first place? If he is the one who is so honoured in the eyes of God, who has no shame, why is he being shamed? As the man says, he has done nothing wrong. And the whole point is that he is not there for himself. He is there so that everyone who would believe in him can say, my shame is gone. I don't have anything else to carry. And so, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, and the, the, the uh, likelihood is this applies to most people here, you do not need to carry the shame that you carry from that thing that happened or you did. Because a man died absorbing it all when he was innocent, when he had nothing, when he had nothing that separated him from the presence of God, when he had nothing that would give him cause to bow his head in shame as he came before God. He died, he absorbed all the shame, so that that man on the cross who believed in him could be told, you're going to be confident before God. See, when we read in the Bible, places like Romans 5, we now have confidence, we have confident access into his throne room. Or in Hebrews 4, we come confidently before the throne of grace. I think we often read that as though it kind of means, I don't need to fear God I can come and ask what I want to ask for. Or I don't need to beat around the bush, I can just come and kind of be direct. This is honour and shame language. The point is, in both of those places, not just, yeah, you're kind of welcome in, it's, hey, you're honoured, you can strut in. This is your abode, you know? You can just waltz before God. Hey, God. And that sounds irreverent. It sounds crazy, that we are talking about the creator of the universe here. We're talking about the judge of all humanity. We're talking about the one who is holy and transcendent and lifted up. But Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus isn't there keeping his head low. Jesus isn't there. "Mm, Do you mind if I just ask you this? Jesus is there confidently because he is honoured in God's presence. I remember a few years ago... um, Stephen Fry. Uh, now, Stephen Fry has done lots of wonderful things for this, for, the, you know, for entertainment, for this nation. But he has always been a very vocal and outspoken atheist. And I remember uh, he did this interview where he was asked, if you could come before God, what would you do? And he said, if I came before God, I would look at him and say, how dare you? How dare you? Bone cancer in children parasites that eat through body parts and it just kind of lifted off all these things and the the point was I have a bone to pick with this man and I remember someone saying uh, if Stephen Fry came face to face with God he would be in so much praise he wouldn't be able to get his words out I don't think that's right I think if Stephen Fry was in the presence of God I think if any non-believer was in the presence of God their head would be bowed so low in shame that they couldn't face to look at him. As you see God in his glory, in his majesty, you become so aware of how much you do not belong there. 
that bad smell has just become very bad. But as he looks off to the right, he sees believers whose heads aren't bowed, but who are strutting. It's good to be here, Lord. How can it be that one group of people cannot bear to look at this God because of the shame that they carry, and the others are so honoured that they just, oh, where's the seat? How can I, get a, how can I make myself feel at home? Because the man on the cross turned and said, you can come with me. He absorbs everything that separates us from God so that we can have everything that connects him to God. What a remarkable, amazing exchange. All our shame, gone. But not just to the point of non-shame. Right? You could be in heaven with non-shame and still feel like you don't quite know where to sit yourself. Because being non-shame doesn't mean that you're honoured, doesn't mean that you're confident. But he does more than that. He doesn't just take our shame, he honours us. He gives us High fives, fist bumps, handshakes in front of all of our schoolmates, to use the analogy. It's incredible. And so I think that there's a, there's a message here to give to a world that is not very good at talking about shame, but we all carry it. The message is, why are you still carrying it? You don't need to. Someone 2,000 years ago carried it all. All those things, all the, the things that create a bad smell around you, they could be gone. Because someone absolutely stank on that cross. Because as bits of his body were broken off and he was torn apart, he says, This is for you. Take, eat. My body is broken for you so that your bodies don't have to be, so that your bodies can be whole. So that you can come before God in body and enjoy the presence of God. A few years ago, I used to really make a lot about the fact that in um, Isaiah 6, Isaiah comes into the presence of God and he sees God in his holiness and he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips, but my eyes have seen the Lord. And in Luke 6, Peter sees Jesus do a miracle when he comes down on his knees before him and he says, depart from me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I cannot be with you. And I remember basically making the point and and thinking this very strongly and saying it in lots of conversations, you don't want to come into the presence of God. It would terrify you. And I realised I was missing the full picture. Because later on, Peter sees Jesus do the same miracle. Miraculous catch of fish. And this time, Peter runs to Jesus again, but he doesn't fall on his knees and say, depart from me. He throws his arms around him, and he is so glad to have him. The story in Isaiah, Isaiah comes before God as a sinner, and God takes away his sin. He puts a coal to his lips, and he says, behold, your sins are forgiven. The point I'm trying to make is this. We do not come to God like Isaiah did, with our sins needing to be forgiven. 
If we believe in Jesus, we come already cleansed. And so when we see God in his glory, we don't say, this is terrifying. We say, this is fantastic. We run to Jesus and we throw our arms around him. And guess what? He throws his arms back around us. And of course, God is still holy, still majestic. We still need to approach with reverence. Of course, of course, of course, of course. But if we do those things at the expense of knowing that God says, I love you and I'm so glad that you're here, we've missed the gospel. We've missed the Jesus who sets a table and says, I want to eat with you now. And so we are going to do just that. We call this the Lord's Supper. Not because it's a fancy word, but because it makes a point about whose is it. Who is the one who set the table? Who's the one who's invited the guests? Jesus. We're going to come in a minute and we're going to take bread and we're going to drink wine. Very boring, ordinary, everyday items of food. And yet in the ordinary, in the mundane, God comes to meet with us and says, Hey, my body was broken. For you. And I'm so glad that you've come to be part of my body. I want you to be one loaf. I want you to be one body. And so we come to it together as a body, as the one loaf, knowing that we are being united. We are being made one by the, by the person whose body was one and was broken into many. So, when Jesus knew that his death was approaching and he invited his friends together and he said, we're going to eat a meal together, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then afterward, he took cups which you'll find alcoholic and non-alcoholic He took blood and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He was broken so that we could come and be whole. Let's pray as we come and take this together. Lord Jesus, we are lost in wonder at all you do. Thank you, Lord. That shame, that smell... What separated us from you? What kept our heads bowed down in your presence? What made us say, woe is me? What made us say, I am terrified? Was absorbed by Jesus. Was taken by Jesus and killed. Was torn apart. And Lord, now you welcome us into your presence. Not as strangers, but as friends and guests. Lord, as we eat this meal, as we share together... Teach us. Teach us that you yourself have died in our place and now invite us into communion with you to be made one as a body, to be made one with the God of the universe and to stand confidently in his presence.
Amen.